boys and girls. You can, you can head on out. Oh, and he's got Ross there with him too. Bye, Cranky. It is going to be quite a day. <laughs> Bye, Cranky. I apologize. I don't know where that came from. Maybe it's because I'm seeing Steve and Ross standing out there in the lobby. Hey, I'd like to start out this sermon time um, by reading Psalm 130 with you. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to listen to this psalm. You'll see it on the screen as well. And, and if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your devices or whatever, I know under our chairs, there are two different brown books, depending on where you're at. Some of them are hymnals. Some of them are Bibles. It's a fun, fun guessing game to see what you're going to discover under there. Um, but if you'd like to follow along, there are some Bibles still scattered among the chairs. But we're in Psalm 130. And I'd like to look at all of this together. And then after, we, after I read this through, I'm going to ask you to kind of look at the person beside you or in front of you, whoever brought you today. I'm going to ask you what it is that this psalm stirs in your heart before, uh, before we go on and kind of describe what it all means. So here's Psalm 130. I hope you'll follow along with me. It says, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Take a moment and look to the person beside you, and if you're by yourself, uh, just maybe pray to the Lord, what is it that this psalm stirs up in your heart right now? Just go ahead and take a minute and speak out loud to the person beside you. What does this psalm stir up in you? What do you hear? Go ahead. So as you and your neighbor were thinking together about what they, uh, what they heard, what you heard the Spirit saying about Psalm 130, does anybody have, anybody have anything that they heard from their neighbor that they thought was particularly interesting that you hadn't thought of before? Any, anything that came out of your neighbor's mouth that you thought we ought to all hear about? Anything? Wait. Wait. Ah, how many times is the word wait in there, right? In fact, that line is repeated. I will wait upon the Lord. I will wait upon the Lord. Thank you, Jim. What else do you hear in there? What else do you notice? But with you, there is forgiveness. But with you, there is forgiveness. Uh-huh. Thank you, Claire. What else do you hear? Hope. hope. Did I hear both of you saying hope at the same time? Well, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So, so we're hearing about waiting. We're hearing about forgiveness. We're hearing about hope. What else did you hear in there? Anything, anything else strike anybody? Redemption, which is all tied up in waiting and hope and forgiveness, right? Right? Yeah. There, there are these themes that come through there. Thank you. Thank you, folks, for sharing a, a challenge to this side of the room for next week. The, 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 the south side has been well represented. Now I'm, I'm going to be looking for the north side next week. 
Yeah, I chose this scripture today because I wanted to read something and I want us to study something that was foundational and elemental about our faith so that we can think about whether we're actually living out the things that we say are true about God. This psalm was written almost 3,000 years ago, right? This was hundreds of years before Jesus even walked on the earth. And this is a psalm of ascents, A-S-C-E-N-T-S. That is, and there's this whole collection of psalms from the 120s into 140 or so that are these psalms of ascents. The idea was there are a lot of short psalms, probably Probably these are psalms that people, as they were making their trips to Jerusalem, would have been quoting or saying or singing these psalms out loud as they were going to the temple, as they were going up, as they were ascending up to where the temple mount was. This is a psalm of ascent. So a lot of, a lot of Jewish folks probably at one time or another would have had this memorized and sang it. Just, just like we, if I were to start out and say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. There are a lot of you in the room who could continue on with me, right? And say, praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. How did you learn that? Those of you who know that song, did you learn? And then there's all kinds of variations that we can go on. Hallelujah. And, and there's such good stuff that we can get it. How did you know that? Did you sit down one time and study some words and lyrics? Those of you who learned it, how did you learn it? You just heard it, right? Over and over and over. Those of you who grew up in certain church traditions know that song. Psalm 130 might have been something like that as well as the Psalms a couple before and a couple after, a Psalm of Ascents. So this would have been a foundational thing, the kind of thing that so many Jewish people were focusing on, thinking about reciting and singing as they were doing their religious stuff. And look how it starts out. This person says, out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. The question we might ask, what are these depths that this person finds themselves stuck in? Some have suggested that these are the depths of like a terrible experience, right? But others, and, and I like this idea, others have suggested that these depths are simply the consequences of their own sin. How many of you have ever found yourselves in a tough spot, in a tight spot, and you've said, oh, I've gotten myself in too deep, or I've found myself in over my head. Or we might say now I'm out of my depth. Any of you ever find by your own choices, by your own mistakes, by your own sin, any of you ever find yourself in over your head like that? I think, I think it makes a lot of sense, and we'll see this in the next couple of verses. I think it makes a lot of sense for us to see Psalm 130, verse 1, as a person crying out, saying, Lord, I am crying out to you from this place that that I've found myself in. And yes, even if we, if we find ourselves in a place where our circumstances are tough through no fault of our own, yes, we can cry out to God, but it seems like it makes a lot of sense here that this person is saying, God, I've just gotten in way too deep and Lord, I am crying out to you. Verse two, as, as the Psalm continues, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Church, whatever exactly these depths are, whether they're things that happen to us or things that we kind of bring upon ourselves, there is, do you see the assumption here? Do you see the deep conviction that even in these depths, if I cry out, God can hear me? 
even in the depths of my own sin, even in the depths of these circumstances, which certainly God could have prevented, even as I find myself needing to cry out, there is this openness to the possibility that God might hear. God is not too far away. God is not too angry. God is not too mad. God has not shut us off. But God indeed can hear our cries. Cries for what? Cries for mercy. So that word mercy is what I think can really clue us into where these depths are. Mercy is an important word. We often talk about God's grace. And it's important to talk about God's grace. Grace is getting something good that we don't deserve. We talk about salvation by grace. We are saved by God. He gives us salvation even though we haven't earned it, right? Grace is a gift. Mercy, on the other hand, is something slightly different. Mercy is being rescued from the bad that we do deserve. Grace is getting something good we don't deserve. Mercy is not having to deal with the bad stuff that we do deserve. And so here's this person crying out from the depths, believing that God can hear. And they're saying, Lord, can you have mercy on me? Don't give me the bad that I've deserved. Don't give me the bad that we all deserve. But Lord, have mercy on me. Would you please deliver me? Have you ever cried out to God for mercy? Have you ever been in too deep? And you know you've brought it upon yourself, but oh Lord, would you please save me from this even now? There's a lot being said about the character of God and the character of people here just in these two verses, isn't there? What do we see? We see that people are broken. What do we see? We see that we deserve bad things and we need to be delivered from that. We see that God can hear even in the depths of our sins. And we see this hope that God can actually do something about our problems. Verse three, it goes on. The person says, if you, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? In other words, God, if you kept track of all this stuff, and, and we know, we know as we look forward into scripture, that God is aware of all of the stuff that happens. But what this person is saying right here is, Lord, if you kept a record of this stuff, we couldn't stand in front of you. If you held it against us all the time, we would not be able to stand in front of you. Lord, have mercy because I need it. Have mercy because without it, I can't stand. Do you see this person lost in their sin, crying out to God, praying that God will hear, asking for mercy and now declaring because, because Lord, we need it so badly. I mean, all of us in this room, even those of us who are Christians, we need to keep in mind that that this salvation thing that we have isn't something that we've earned our way into or or something that now that we've got it, look at us. No, this, this is something that we've needed, that everyone needs. Do you ever fall into the trap? Do you ever fall into the trap, quite frankly, of just thinking that some of the people around you might be beyond helping Do you know any people who just seem to not get it over and over, no matter how many times you tell them, no matter how many times you warn them, no matter how many times you read scripture with them or you share with them or you plead with them, do you know anybody? Do you know anybody who just seems like a lost cause? I wonder if you can be and if I can be a little bit more patient with them when we remember that none of us have anything that really lets us stand up before the Lord except for the gift of God's salvation itself. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? No one can stand before God, yet with God there is mercy. Do you see how foundational this stuff is just as we dig into the Psalms? Do you see how much is being talked about about the human condition, about who God is? 
it gets more clear. Look at verse four. But with you, Lord, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Right? We sin. We all sin. And God forgives. In Acts 13, hundreds of years after this psalm was written, in Acts 13, soon after Jesus had died, Sermons are being preached and lessons are being taught. And Acts 13, 38 says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. God saves. Jesus forgives. We are now able to serve God with reverence because we have been forgiven. With God, there is forgiveness. And do you understand how radical of an idea that is? That the God who created the universe, who commanded us how to live, who taught us and who showed us, and who has watched us fall, do you understand how revolutionary it is for the God of all of that to forgive us and give us a second chance, a third chance, fourth chance, fifth chance? Do you understand how radical it is to think of an almighty being who forgives. That's one of the great differences between our God and all the other ideas of God that float around in the world. Our God loved us so much that he sent his son to be our savior, sacrificing of himself so that we could be made whole. And now we are able to serve God. Do you see the ramifications of this basic proclamation of reality in Psalm 130? It makes a difference in our lives today. This may sound like theoretical stuff. It may just sound like Sunday school kind of lesson stuff, but let me challenge you, church, to think about how these ideas make a difference in the way that we live. I mean, it makes a difference if we know that we are all sinners and we can't stand up in front of God on our own. Because when we know that and understand it, it's like a lens that we look through that helps us to remember to be humble in our relationships, not to put ourselves above somebody else because I'm no higher than you or you or you and, and you're not any higher than me. We all, what's to say, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all need God's mercy. And so if we can keep this in mind, it, it keeps us in this place of understanding, yes, I am loved, but I am not above if we know that we're sinners, it should help us to have compassion for the broken because we can see that we've been rescued and there but for the grace of God go I. If we know that we are sinners, it should help us to remember that our hope is in God and not in ourselves. And so while we get excited about the opportunities that we have to serve God with reverence, we recognize that it's not us who is such a big deal. We just point back to God. It makes a difference if we know that we are sinners. And it makes a difference if we know that we are all sinners because it pushes us to get out there and tell people about our faith because they need what we've got. They need what God has given us. They too are out of their depth, over their heads, have gotten in too deep. It makes a difference if we know that God can hear us from these places of deep misery, sin, and brokenness. It makes a difference if we know that even when things are so dark that we can cry out and God will hear. It makes a difference to know that we can cry out and, and God will forgive. It's not too long, as, not too late as long as we can cry out. Do you see what I'm saying here? Like, this is why this is a bit of a worldview sermon because the way that you see these basic things about God and us, it makes an entire difference in the way that you live and act and think today. It makes a difference if we know that forgiveness releases us to serve God. Forgiveness moves us forward. Forgiveness us, lets us serve out of gratitude and not out of obligation. Forgiveness allows us to live with joy even if we're not constantly trying to serve ourselves. I am amazed. 
I guess I'm getting old, and, and it makes me realize this when I say, back when I was a kid. But I'm amazed at so many things that, that were once shameful and hidden that are now mainstream and advertised. This makes me think of so many of you who are a generation older than me, and I've been hearing this from you for years, and I thought, yeah, the old man's just exaggerating. But you're not, are you? I like to watch football games. I enjoy watching the NFL, and I am blown away in the last three or four years as gambling has become so much more legalized in specific states and in specific areas, but how many ads there are for, for FanDuel and for this one and for that one, live game parlays. You can bet from your phone with real money right now legally, and it's just the advertisements over and over where you know, before it was the kind of thing that you had to go to a place with a scary guy. And, you know, now it's just, it's, it's advertised, it's celebrated. Yesterday I was, <clears throat> I was flipping through for a minute in between two college football games, I had just a short amount of time to watch a little bit, and so I, I was trying to get the most out of both of them. And as I was flipping in, in between, I didn't have it set right yet to just go from channel to channel. I was still going up or down two or three, because I'm old. And there was a whole show on the one channel that was just people from one of the gambling networks talking about how great it is that they have these new developments and now there's like an online casino so that during the football game, if you get bored with all the football betting, you can just do casino games on your phone, real money, real stuff in live time. They had not just an advertisement, but like they bought a half an hour of time to talk about it. What does that say about some of our deepest and most core convictions. What does it say about the way that we think about money? Whose money is it that we're spending? Whose money is it that we're gambling and putting it on the line? Well, if it's just ours, if this is just our stuff to play with, well then, I don't think you can make a smart case for gambling, but maybe you can at least make a values neutral case. But what do we understand? We people who have cried out from the depths, we who call out to a God who sees everything and who can hear us even from the dark places, we who, who know that God forgives us so that we can serve him in righteousness, we who recognize if we read other Psalms and other Proverbs that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and, and that every good thing that we have is a gift from him, that, that the only reason why we're standing is because of God's mercy. If we can understand our stuff as his that we are just in control of and if we think about the fact that we are putting God's money on the line when we type it in, does that make any difference in the way that we act? I think it would, wouldn't it? But how are we thinking? How are we seeing the world? How are we understanding things? Are we the center of it or is God the center of it? Oh, the gambling commercials mess with me. People, leave it alone. Don't go there. That is not where life is. Trust God to provide for what you need. Trust that God has given you this body and this mind to be able to work, to do the things that you're called to do, and, and trust God that he will fill in the gaps instead of looking for the quick score that's not going to save you. It's not going to save you. You're throwing it away. And yet, oh, it's just fun, isn't it? Oh, church, are, are you thinking? Are you connecting all the dots between your core beliefs and the way that you're acting? Even these things that we might say are just little things in our world. It speaks to pornography, doesn't it? I mean, you can all notice that even at five, six, seven o'clock in the evening, even on the free channels, there's stuff on TV that was not when we were kids. But yet, what's the attitude? I just, I just want to get what I want. 
I don't want to have to work for anything. I don't want to build relationships. I don't want to talk about marriage. I don't want to talk about commitment or any of that. I just want to feel good. I just want to look at what I want to look at. Leave me alone. What? Really? Like, is that the kind of attitude that we can have about other people and their bodies and our bodies when we understand that even when we've gotten into deep, God gives us mercy and we are sinners and God forgives us. And why does he forgive us? So that we can be set free to serve him. But God doesn't forgive us so that we can go back to our slop and be stuck again in sin. That we can be addicted to images of people that we don't even know. That we can be wrapped up in this kind of filth and just using our bodies for things that we like. No, God says, I've rescued you. But do you connect the dots from your worldview and your ideas of God to the ways that you're acting today? Or, or do you say that you believe in Jesus and yet your life says that you are the king? How are you living? How are we living, church? It speaks to violence. Am I, am I able to be happy with what God has given me or do I have to go out and kill and steal to take what I want? Am I able to see other people as, as broken sinners in need of a savior? Or as I, am I able to see somebody else as a target and somebody I can take advantage of to get what I'd like, whether that be stuff or influence or simply power? It speaks to the way that we think about taking and giving. If we understand that God hears us when we cry, if we understand that God hears everyone when they cry, if we understand that without God's mercy, none of us can stand before him. If we can understand all that, can we trust that God to meet our needs instead of having to go take it, instead of having to gamble for it, instead of just having to grab it? Can we avoid the shortcuts if we trust our God to come through? This is hard, though, because as we've talked about, why does the word wait pop out to us when we hear Psalm 130? Because we don't like it. I don't like to wait. We've talked about this before. We're in a culture where more and more and more things are instant right here, right now. But look what it says, Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. Here's a person crying out from the depths. I've gotten in too deep. Lord, I know you can hear me. I need your mercy because we're all broken. Lord, I know that you can forgive me and that I can then serve you. Lord, I am waiting for you. My whole being waits. The part of me that wants to make a quick buck, the part of me that just wants to look around at all of this skin, the part of me that wants to just go out and try to take it because I might be bigger and stronger and smarter. No, instead, do you see what the psalmist says? I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. In other words, God has promised all the things that we need. God has promised to look after us. Do we believe it? Do we trust it? Church, is there anything that you are waiting for? Is there anything that you are willing to wait for that you don't have yet? Or, or is there this unsettledness inside of you that feels like you just have to make it happen. Maybe that's why this psalmist, maybe this psalmist, whoever wrote Psalm 130, maybe they can identify with us more than we might assume somebody from 3,000 years ago could. They say this wait thing four times, five times. Look at verse five. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. And then in verse six, said again, I don't know if it's because the psalmist assumed 
that they needed to wait more, or if they're just reminding any, might, any who might read it that we all need to wait. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. You know what a watchman used to do? Through the night, when people were sleeping, they would stand either on the wall or at the gate or at the edge, and they would watch to make sure that nothing bad was coming in. Why do they wait for the morning? Well, have any of you ever worked third shift? And you're just waiting for that morning because when the morning comes, I am out of here. How many of you have been on a long drive and you're just waiting those last couple miles? I can't wait to get there because you're getting sleepy and you're getting tired and you've had enough. That's the watchman waiting for the morning. I can't wait until this is over. Any of you get sleepy at the end of your time at work? Oh, it's a rough day when you go into your shift sleepy, isn't it? But a watchman, they're waiting for the morning. They just can't wait. Can I be done? Can I be done watching? I feel like I'm in danger. Is somebody watching me? I'm so tired. I've been up all night just waiting for the sun to come so that somebody else can get their eyes out here, waiting for this shift to be over. I wait for the Lord like that. Even more than watchmen wait for the morning. Do you get the picture here? What is, what is being said about God? What does this say about our world? It says that not everything happens right now when we want it. Everything happens at the right time. Can anybody testify to the truth that God works in time and not necessarily on your time? Uh, yeah, wow, a couple of Mennonites even said things out loud there. Can you believe it? You understand what that's like. Those of you who have lived a few years, you look back and say, it didn't happen when I wanted it, but when it happened, it was good. How many married people am I looking at right now who could tell me that same kind of thing? How many of you have ever had to wait and when you got it, it was so much better than it would have been if you'd have hurried and hustled to go grab it? That's what's being said here in this psalm. I'm, I'm waiting for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. I wonder if, if we remember that God's timing is perfect, does that have any impact at all on the way that we live and think and feel today? How many of the things that stir us up, that mess with our mind and mess with our heart and mess with our stress, how many of these things are about timing issues? Is it going to be in time? Have I got, do I have enough time? Has it, are we going to be able to get there? Do you think God really calls you to do more than you're able? Do you think God really demands that you do 25 hours worth of things in a 24-hour day? Do you think that God doesn't understand that you need to sleep and that your body gets tired and there's only so much you can take? Do you think God doesn't get that? Yes, God understands that, but it does mean that we have to sometimes wait for things that we didn't want to wait for. And here this psalmist says, oh, I am in deep. And God, I'm crying out to you and I need your mercy. And oh God, I'm, I'm even willing to wait for it. Oh Lord, I am so ready. Lord, bring it. I'm waiting even more than the watchmen wait in the morning. Verse seven, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This isn't anything that has happened just yet, and yet there is this call to hope, like real hope. Wait for it. Wait for it. It's coming. It'll be good. God can deliver even when we're lost. Wait on this. And church, you know this. So many of us know this. We understand this. 
But what does our life look like? I've told three different people this week, when they asked me, how's it going? How am I doing? I said, I'm doing really well. I'm really excited. A lot of good things going on. But there are too many good things. There are so many fun things that I want to be involved with. I want to be a part of that. And I want to go to that meeting. And I want to go to that game. And I want to be in that event. And I want to be it. And I don't have time for all the things that I want to do. But I don't know what it is about how I'm built that just finds it so hard to say no. Because I want to go. I want to be engaged there. I can help and I can have fun. But I only have so much capacity. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so just this week, as I talked to a, a couple of really well-trusted brothers who were asking me how I was doing, I was just explaining that to them. I said, life is going really well. Melanie and Bray, we're good. The church, things are going really good. But I said, I need help in, in just knowing which things are the priorities. Some of that's a work thing, but mostly it's a life thing. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? Because now all of a sudden life is so full of all the good stuff that I'm not really fully invested in very much of it. And it feels now just like I'm busy. And busy is not very much fun. And it feels like I'm hurrying. And hurry is not very much fun. And that happens sometimes for a season, but the seasons are starting to meld into each other. So that now there's no down season. There's no downtime. I have, I have my Sabbath. But there's, there's something else that's missing because I'm not able to sort it out yet or not willing to make the hard decisions yet. There are probably some things and some relationships and some connections and some opportunities that I need to say no to because I can wait for that. I don't need to do that right now. I don't need that right now. And they don't need me right now. But I'm starting to wonder if one of my problems is I just have a waiting problem. And yet, when I talk about my faith, I will tell you with all of my heart that God is trustworthy and true. That God will give me all that I need. There are some places like this in my life where I have not fully connected the dots. Where what I say I believe is not really working itself out in the way that I'm living. And do you know what that does? This leads to this thing that we call stress. Now, sometimes stress just happens because we're in a broken world. We are in a world where there is chaos all around us, and that does affect us. But how much of our stress, like the sinner who's gotten in too deep, how much of our stress is brought about by unwisely saying yes or no? I wonder, I, I wonder if, if my whole concept of who God is and how good he is and how trustworthy he is, I wonder if that message has really landed in every area of my life. Because sometimes when a person calls me and says, Jesse, would you like to come over? I'm going to say, yeah! Because that opportunity is not connected to the reality that no, I'm at capacity for today. And it's okay if I say no. Because I can have fun with that person tomorrow or next week or maybe there's somebody else that needs to go talk with that person so that they can be built up together and I don't even have to be part of that but see we jump right in okay I, I, I jump right in probably none of you do this you're wiser than that aren't you what I want to challenge all of us to be thinking about today are you taking a ruthless look at your life to see if the way that you're living really is fully and absolutely connected to the deepest things that you believe about God.
Or is there some kind of incongruity out there that leads to that kind of stress that says, wait, things aren't as they should be. Wait, something's out of whack. Wait, I'm, I'm either so worn out or I'm so disengaged that, that I'm not where I should be. What we believe about God, friends, influences everything that we do. And I just wonder if we've connected all the dots in all of the areas of our lives. I want to close with a story. This this story blew me away and um, just brought a lot of joy to my heart. I was talking, in in the last two weeks, I was talking with a friend who works for a mission agency. Works in Lancaster at, at one of the agencies that sends people out into the world. But this friend actually went and they were in North Africa. They were not able to say where they were exactly because it's politically dangerous for those who are still there. But a friend with a mission agency was in North Africa and they were there in mid-June. So about three, four months ago. They were in mid-June. They met with new Christians who had been Muslims up until just a couple months ago. And in their Muslim context, it was okay, in fact, encouraged for men of means to marry multiple women, for one guy to have a bunch of wives. Now, in Christianity, we don't do that. We believe that the scripture teaches us not to do that. But this was the setting where my friend was at. So they met with new Christians who have been Muslims and who have multiple wives, and here's the report. All of these people, the men and their wives and their kids, are beginning to believe in Jesus. They have accepted the gospel. There is a 700-person movement in that region toward Christ, and it's illegal to be a Christian there. But these people have heard about Jesus, and they've heard about the hope of the gospel, and they have acknowledged that they are sinners, and they've received the gift of salvation from the Lord. They've repented from their sins, and now they want to live and move forward as Christians. And the challenge and the question came up, what in the world do you do with Christian faith when you're a guy with a bunch of wives? How do you deal with that? And this is what they said. They said, well, they're keeping their wives because they're responsible for them. If these wives don't have these husbands, they've got nothing. And if these kids don't have the family unit that they're kind of used to, they don't have anything. So for now, for this generation, they're keeping their wives, but they're following hard after Christ, everybody. And from here on out, things are going to be different. All the marriages from now on will be one man to one woman, as we know that God has called us to. But these guys are saying, we can't abandon our women, we can't abandon our children, nor should they. And what was blown away, or what was blowing me away, was to think about all of the work that God must have been doing behind the scenes to get those 700 people to this place today. To be living in a place where it is literally illegal to be a Christian. To get to a place where there is so much other religion, in this case it's Islam, that would divide their attention and discourage them from being Christian. And they're living out a life in such a way that, my goodness, how do you even have time to think about anything when you've got many wives and many children? (laughs) Or if you're one of the wives, how do you think about love in such a way when you've got that kind of baggage? And if you're one of the kids, how do you think about the love of a father and and the family and... And yet, 700 people are moving towards Christ because God's doing something. God is at work touching hearts. God is at work touching lives, bringing just the right people at just the right time with just the right message so that people hear about Jesus and give their lives to him.
And now there are 700 new folks who we're going to get to meet in heaven someday. Americans, can, can we trust that God enough to wait on the things that we need instead of going out and just grabbing it or trying to win it or trying to take it? Our core beliefs about God and about ourselves affect everything we do. So church, focus on those core beliefs. Remember who you are. Remember who God is. Remember. Remember how much you are loved and how much of an opportunity it is to serve others and serve the Lord now that we're forgiven. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you will strengthen our brothers and sisters now in North Africa. And Lord, I've heard, heard stories of so many other people in other places around the world who are having similar awakenings. Thank you, God. I pray that you'll bless the mission agencies and the missionaries who are on the ground so that everybody can hear about you. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we get these reminders over and over and over of how faithful, how powerful, and how perfect you are. Lord, here in our lives, help us to rely on your faithfulness and on your power and on your perfection. Help us to rely on your promises and help us to know that, that even if things don't line up in the timing that we think is right, Lord, help us to know that it's okay to have to wait. Lord, help us to connect the dots so that everything that we believe gets worked out in everything that we do. So that everything we believe is reflected in all the things that we say. And Lord, help us to be the kind of folks that, that recognize the brokenness and the need of others in such a way that, that we tell them about your love and your care and your forgiveness. Thank you, God, for this chance that we've had today to examine your word together. And Lord, as we come close to you, I pray that you will continue to hear our cries that you would continue to forgive our sins and you would draw us close. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.